The Google Podcast app is going away in April. Right now, I want you to take a look at the podcast app you're using right now. Maybe it's time for a new one. Check out podcastapps.com and try a new one for free right now. That's podcastapps.com. You're listening to the Insurance Podcast with Pete Tessier and Kurt Wyatt. Brought to you by First Insurance Funding of Canada, the innovator in insurance payments. Kurt, we came in on a hurry-up offense on this one because there's been weather that's hit us. We just landed this um, right ahead of ITC, and we've got Drew Aldrich, who is the co-founder and managing partner of Viewpoint, which is essentially, I don't even know how to describe it really well, but it's more of a network that brings people together to help deal with your needs in the insurance ecosystem on all fronts where it's got to do with helping funding development and finding success uh drew has an incredible bit of experience when it comes to his background um and you know wanting to be an investment banker and then having his epiphany of how incredibly cool insurance is and we love that Absolutely, Pete. And uh, just to correct it, uh, he's founder. Yeah, so he's founder. It's it just, it just him. Yeah, yeah just him. Co. It's just, just, just true. Yeah, and, just and true. you're going to hear when, when he comes on here in a minute, the energy he has uh, towards a, a, this industry. And you can see how he was the founder of this company. He He's embraced what is insurance. He he sees the future. He, he's, he's trying to figure out what the future of insurance is like everybody else is. Yeah. And I think his clarity of it is is really good in the sense that he, he like you say he's got some history now and and he's he's trying to help everybody succeed here. Uh, it's it's a cool story. Yeah, it's a really cool story, and I you know it's super exciting to have someone of Drew's vision, his connectivity, and all the different things he sort of sees in this ecosystem, and and what he thinks is going to happen. He shares a ton of it, but hey. The other thing we've got to talk about is um, FirstPay from First uh, Canada, um, the easy to implement suite of APIs. So here we go. We talk about things. You probably heard us talk about APIs at different conventions and stuff. So with First Insurance Funding um, and FirstPay, you can integrate all your methods of payment into your workflow, app, website, or portal, and increase your efficiency. And you can close business faster. You can easily provide bespoke payments, right? At the point of sale and close business faster while improving your client experience. You can trust the secure, we're all trying to sell cyber, secure and in-market solutions from the leader in insurance payments, which is First Canada. And Kurt, the other um, thing we want to talk about too is we are friends that take on risk. The MGA that specializes in niche markets, hard to place, are unusually complex commercial risk. They turn hard risk into smart cover shield fashion way. They underwrite it. So visit them at taycon.ca and you can check out Drum, the digital rating underwriting manager for your automated submissions. Bang the drum with take on. And one final thing. I know we plug a lot and we have great people we promote. We don't just uh, choose them out of thin air. But hey, if you are sitting on the fence and this podcast makes you say, hey, I'm jumping on a flight to Vegas, go to theinsurancepodcast.com, click on the InsureTech Connect icon and grab a code. Save some money on your registration. Come down, be a part of the podcast with us. Reach out to us. We'll help you navigate this conference if you've never been there before. Save a bit of money and have a blast. Get to InsureTech Connect because it's going to be amazing. 
Absolutely. And, you know, we all have a buddy named Bob. So, hey, Bob, that yeah. that message is to you. Yeah. Click it. Click we it. We need to see you there. We need to see you there. You need to be there. And Drew's going to drive you to want to go there after you listen to this one. Hey, everyone. Uh, as you heard on the intro, we've got Drew Aldrich. And Drew is the founder and managing partner of Viewpoint. And we're going to let you sort of, we gave you a little preview of what Viewpoint does, but we're going to let Drew talk about that. And he's sitting here, been patiently waiting for us to go get him to talk. So Drew, welcome to the insurance podcast. Been a bit of a, a, a bit of a, a moving target in terms of sitting down together and getting moving, but thanks for joining us. And uh, how's your day going so far? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, thank you so much for having me. It's it's a real pleasure. So yeah, really appreciate it. Hey, one of the things we like to do first, Drew, is talk a little bit about sort of your background, where you came from, how you ended up in the insurance ecosystem, and sort of a little bit about Viewpoint. And then we'll kind of dive into what's coming up because by the time people probably hear this, InsureTech Connect will have come and gone, but you've got a bit of a report coming. And we want to dive into that too and talk about those things. Amazing. Yeah, happy, happy to start by telling you how I got in, into insurance. I, I wonder if this is just me, but it does seem like a lot of people, when you ask them this question, the answer is I sort of fell in randomly and then have sort of uh, stayed ever since. And that's definitely true for me. I grew up just outside of New York City, spent my whole career uh, in in the pretty much in the New York City area. And Honestly, ever since high school, I wanted to be a venture capitalist. I was in high school during the dot-com bubble, and everyone seemed to be in startup land having a great time, particularly the VCs. And so I looked at that and said, hey, I want to do that. And so I tried a whole bunch of different ways to keep one foot in that ecosystem, the startup venture ecosystem, on the off chance that I could get the opportunity. And I got incredibly lucky because of insurance. I happened to land at... A, in, massive insurance company called AXA. I landed at their at the time, this is 2012, in their US insurance company, which was AXA Equitable, which was actually life and annuity. And I had been really interested in the New York City sort of fintech scene and because uh, the insure tech scene didn't really even exist at the time. And I landed just at the right place at the right time when AXA said, hey, we're starting to get interested in startups. We're seeing other carriers build venture capital funds. Could you help us think about how to do this? And ultimately, a couple years later, uh, moved to Paris, which is where AXA is, is based. I uh, helped set up AXA Ventures, which is now called AXA Venture Partners, which is a, a venture capital firm backed entirely by AXA. Then, so I was, I was at AXA for just about, in total, about five years, just under five years. And uh, had this great opportunity to join another insurance company-owned venture capital fund called American Family Ventures. It's a great opportunity that AmFam Ventures had, was one of the first. American Family was sort of one of the first to jump into the insure tech world or to think about startups' impact on insurance carriers and PNC in particular. And uh, they had been they had been going for a number of years before I joined them, and I. Joined in very early 2017, had an incredible run there, and then had the opportunity to start Viewpoint. So that's sort of how I got in and stayed in the uh, insurance and insure tech venture specific industry. Well, I just want to say that you just made me feel really bloody old because when you were in high school in the dot-com industry, I just had my first kid. I was bouncing around between dot-coms, running out of places to land. But 
to that point, that's I want to come back to this because I've said this a number of times throughout the years of doing the podcast. I will never regret the chaos, the pain, the uncertainty, everything that came along with the dot-com sector that I went through because it taught me so much. And yes, there are people lost money. I was jobless for a long time. I had to find, I had to deliver pizzas just to have something on my resume that said I wasn't a dot com survivor. Like it was bad, but yeah. man, so interesting to see someone who is kind of inspired by what was going on and how it arrived as opposed to us who survived it and, and had to sort of reinvent ourselves and how you've sort of maybe invented what you wanted to be because of that era. That that's really interesting. Now, Drew, let's go ahead. You're going to say something. Uh, yeah, I mean, I, well, I'll tell you. So I graduated so high school during dot com, but then I graduate in 2006, and I ended up going to Wall Street, working at a rating agency, rating structured finance pro- products in 2007 and 2008. That that is a very different but related time to what ultimately the dot com crash. Then came the asset-backed security crash and ultimately the global financial crisis, rating structured products was a little bit of the heart of that industry. And I could, so you, you, you were commenting on sort of this formative time, dynamic time in sort of financial markets history of, of the dot-com bubble creating this um, inspiration for me. I, I consider it, one of the luckiest things that ever happened to me that I joined structured finance at that time, because it, it, as an investor today, I have very, very deep and probably I assume permanent scars around the difficulty of what, what I'll just call new underwriting models. And that originally, oh, all I'm that interested meant to me was, in this. and so originally that only meant something to me in the credit context. And then I joined uh, then, then I started doing venture capital in the insurance industry and then the insure tech boom, just, I mean, I could not have been, I've gotten lucky truly dozens of times in my career. I think I was, I, I was lucky to have landed in that job on, on wall street. When I did, I got lucky to land at AXA exactly when I did, I got lucky to land at American family. I, I, I the number of times, but the, uh, and, and one of those big ones was I ha- happened to start in, in SureTech Venture Capital in you know, effectively 2013 to, to help build Axe Ventures. The fund wouldn't get up and running until about January, February of 2015. But that's really when I start. And man, was that timing incredible because that's just as InsureTech. I mean, is InsureTech, like, I think the term gets coined in 14, 15, something like that. So the fact that I got to start just ahead of that was also incredible. And then going back to my lead in here is, uh, underwriting of risk assets, whether we're talking credit or we're talking insurance, is extremely difficult. And there's a, a natural tendency to, I, I don't know, something about the optimism of, I go with youth or optimism of tech that just sort of says, hey, we can just do this all better. Everything that came before us is, uh, you know, is wasn't going to work. And, and uh, that was also lucky that I'd had those scars because I think one of the things that InsureTech has shown is that's really, really, really tough uh, to, to it, underwriting is still at the core of insurance and it's, and it's really challenging uh, and, and you can't just sort of automate it away. Anyway, that's just giving you a sense of uh, these sort of important moments leading to now. 
Yeah. Hey, Drew, it's Kurt here. Uh, I love your enthusiasm, by the way. Like, uh, I, I just finished shoveling snow for 30 minutes and I'm in the house and, <laughs> and I'm not, now I'm excited about talking about insurance again, where before I was just depressed. So, <laughs> yeah. Uh, so thank you we've, for bringing some enthusiasm. Yeah, we've totally <laughs> sold Drew on coming to Canada in October. Like, he's never oh, going to, never going to show up. <laughs> so, you know, hearing you talk, I'm just going to sort of back it up a little. Cause like, like you say, you, 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 you sort of, Missed you dodged a few bullets, let's say, yes. uh, through that time frame, and and then you you know you hear you are at AXA and you're you're part of this sort of sure tech uh, takeoff, uh, the launch and everything else. But just sort of looking at this and, and taking it to thirty five thousand feet and going, kind of cool how you know people look at insurance and say. Ah, it's kind of like, yeah, it's the fourth pillar of the financial sector. It's kind of boring. It's you know whatever, and 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 and, and people who are in it like us who do podcasts and like you doing the VC stuff, you, you, you all of a sudden realize this is this is actually really cool. And, and not just cool for the fact that there's this new stuff happening, but look at the stability brought to your life in that you, you've been now building on a successful career. Like I look at what some of the things you've accomplished uh, in your in your bio there on your website. And it's like some cool companies you've been, you know, on this journey with. And Looking back now, when you when you first got you know out of university and you said you're you're jazzed by finance and such, would have you thought insurance would have been sort of the the, the industry itself that would have got you this excited about what you're doing? Definitely not. Yeah, and I think it's a bit of I don't know how like it, it insurance really is quite fascinating when you start. There's so many stories that I find interesting inside of insurance that are totally non-obvious externally. I'll just as an example, um, like the, the concept, one of the challenges that some of the startup um, auto carriers have had is maybe in hindsight, obvious, but it, 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 but really not. And it goes, it's that the, in general, generally speaking, the pool of buyers of auto insurance are probably that cohort, those who are actively looking for auto insurance, they're probably not the best risks. And because if you're actively searching for auto insurance, probably you've been churned out by existing auto policy. And it could be for many, many reasons, but one of those reasons might be because they deemed you not the greatest risk. And so there's a concept of the new business penalty where the, the, the clients you're trying to acquire on whole, on a whole, would would actually make you lose money as a carrier. And so, your job as a carrier is you have to acquire, you know, the highest performing book you possibly can on that cohort. And then your actual job is to churn out bad risks and but retain good risks. That's a really interesting concept. That's super. That's super strategic. It, it, it you can see how inside of an insurance carrier, man, that's a challenging, meaty problem to tackle. That's ever changing. Uh, and that's just sort of one example. Another example I'll give you that I always talk about for why I think insurance is so much more interesting than outsiders give it credit for. So like think about um, the differences between like a, a term life, uh, assessing new new technology for a term life carrier on underwriting versus a auto carrier in you say, okay, well they're both insurance term life is the epitome of like classic long tail insurance where it's relative like the per dollar term life might be one of the most levered financial products ever created. 
if you have a $2 million face policy, you're probably paying less than $1,000 a year for that policy. And if you buy that policy the first year and you die that year, that insurance company owes your family $2 million. That The leverage on that system is absolutely massive. And so you need, you need very, very few claims or else you're going to be totally blown out of the water. And uh, I compare that to sort of auto where um, in, in auto, the, the size of the policy versus the size of the claims are often far more compressed. Not only that, if you have an auto book, some decent chunk of that book is going to have a claim in a given year. In term life, a tiny number of uh, total policies are going to have a claim. That's, that's, the, that's the reason why it can be so levered. And so one of the interesting things is how does this manifest in terms of new technology? Well, in term life, uh, the, the, the cycle to know if you've, what the change you've made in underwriting, what does that do to losses is unbelievably long and really hard to assess because it's not about, okay, I made a change to my underwriting process. It's not about how many policies did I write. It's how many claims did I experience. You, won't, you don't experience that many claims in general, and those claims don't happen for years. People, you, you write the policies, and it's got to take years for there to be a, sort of a death claim on it. In auto, you make a change your underwriting, you're going to know it in whether that was positive or negative in like three to six, max nine months because your book is going to have those claims. And so a given carrier's interest in and ability to assess new underwriting models or be receptive to it totally different because the risks are totally different. And I don't know, I think that's super fascinating, but I'm not sure every, I'm not sure those, those differences are appreciated by, by the outside world, which uh, I'm a little bit of an evangelist for, no, no, no. If you meet someone who says they're working in insurance, you should, like, you should actually go and talk to them. They have some yeah. interesting stuff to tell you. You sound like Kramer. When he got the plates, I don't know if you're old enough to be a Seinfeld guy, but you know, ass man. And there's like, you need a proctologist. You talk to him. That guy has stories. Yes. <laughs> and, 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 you know, like this morning I pulled out and, and there's four inches of slush and snow. And, and, you know, at not one moment did I think to myself as I was driving, you know, like a, at a 10 minute drive, I thought, I didn't think to myself, you know what? It's a good chance I'm going to die today. I didn't think that back to your term life thing, but yeah. I did actually multiple times got very close to, to, to having a car accident. And, and that's yeah. because, you know, here in Canada, when, when it's your first snowfall, there's no gravel or salt on the roads and, and, and everything's very slick underneath. So, so to your point, right? Like, like those underwriters have to see how is it that we're able to navigate through those uh, uncharted waters of, you know, from, from the guy who's pulling out in his car who hadn't driven in snow for four years uh, to the, to the person who's, you know, uh, needing life insurance and potentially in a hazardous position somewhere in their, you know, in yeah. their time that they're a policyholder. And, 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 and so there's really like from, you know, what A to Z and, and really taking people from 16 all the way up to a hundred, right. As far as, uh, you know, the timelines in which they need these products. So, so really exciting. So now, you, you know, you move into this VC space, like how, how, and you say you, you know, you, you avoided some, some major uh, hiccups along the way, but, I think here we are today, man. Like this is this is wild stuff, right? Like it's it's even more uh, unchartered than ever before. I would think. Yeah. The the so the way my mental model for where we sort of sit today on on insuretech is pre twenty fifteen, uh, before insuretech, there was a venture capital industry and there was the insurance industry, and they did not overlap at all. They didn't even have, like they didn't, people didn't run in the same networks. They didn't go to the same 
country clubs or they just didn't even know each other. Venture capital firms knew nothing about insurance companies and didn't know anyone who worked at insurance companies. And so there was, there was like sort of an impenetrable wall. Post-2015, that all changes because of the sheer amount of capital that flows into the space. And VCs, because they're now investing in the space, they now need to actually go and learn it. And they need to actually go and meet people. And what happens is the whole, the, the whole ecosystem grows a number of the really important nodes. There are a whole bunch of insurance-owned venture capital funds, AXA, AmFam, and then dozens more. A whole bunch of specialist funds get created who actually understand insurance. A whole bunch of people at traditional funds start becoming experts inside of insurance. And then you have a wrapper of the ecosystem. InsureTech Connect is the perfect example. There are lots of other conferences that have been built, but all of these nodes are self-reinforcing and they drive the growth of network between the capital side and the insurance side and, and knowledge, the growth of network and knowledge between the two sides. The reason this is all really important, and because I actually have been saying this for a number of years, that it was clear that the amount of capital that um, flowed into venture and into InsurTech was unsustainable. The growth, I, the growth of InsurTech, I, th- I think in the last... The last back in like between 2021 was uh, totally unprecedented. And even that had sort of grown around 60% year on year since 2013. I mean, just unbelievable amount of capital flowed into space. That was going to come down for sure. But the key that we believe is that that incredible growth of nodes in the system and expertise in the system, the growth of network and knowledge between the venture capital industry and the insurance industry that Pandora's box was opened and it, it's not going away. Even as capital has come down, those networks retain. And the and what that means for the industry more broadly is we won't go back to the pre-2015 period where there was a small number, generally a small number of parties driving the innovation. Like from now until forever, there will be startups that sort of create the innovative push on the industry. It won't necessarily be the startups that win always or often, but it, but they will create the sort of innovative um, energy that keeps the that, that that speeds up or continuously speeds up the sort of speed of change and innovation in the space. So yeah, today we're sitting at a world where venture capital is in real trouble. I, I often talk about I'm one of the more pessimistic people in venture. Because the the excesses were so great leading leading up to twenty twenty two when when sort of things reset, uh, it's going to take a number of years to come back to a normal sort of healthy venture capital market. So, but hang on, yeah, I want to just sorry to interrupt you, Drew. No, go for should it. we come back to it? Because I I often ask. I said this the first time I went to ITC. It was 2019. Kurt and I went down there, you know, a couple of Canadian guys. We had this podcast and our, our minds are kind of blown. We knew about it, but we didn't really understand what was going on. I walked through there and I'm going to go back to the dot-com era. And I said, there's no way this is sustainable. It's just simply not. I've seen this show. Yeah. And yep. maybe that took me 20 years of, of, of the school of hard knocks to understand it and get into a different industry. But was there a little bit of quoting Alan Greenspan, a rational exuberance when it came to this, say five, six years ago? And do should we get back there? I, I don't know if that's 
if that's the right way to uh, how do how do I what do you think we should do? Yeah, I don't yeah. who cares about my opinion. What's your opinion? The, the I think it's a, it's an it's a good point. It's an interesting point. The I do think I'll, there was so much money in the system, but I don't think the money was uh, properly allocated to where it would have the most actual innovative impact. A enormous amount of the capital that went into the insurtech space went directly to Google and Facebook in the form of ads for direct with direct consumer brands of insurance. And that can work, right? Uh, in the United States, Geico and Progressive are really strong. They're, they, they do a lot of direct to consumer. They also use agents now, but they do a lot of direct to consumer. They do spend about a billion a year in advertising. So it's a really hard thing to match up. But the, uh, a lot, that, that money that sort of went from venture capital firm to startup, to Google, I would argue that money didn't drive a lot of innovation. It, it, like almost definitionally, it didn't. It literally went venture capital firm, startup, Google. Versus what, what, what I, you know, could, could we have gotten to this current place a little cheaper? Definitely, like definitely. But I think everyone's a lot smarter now. They say, oh, wait a minute. There's a whole bunch of really interesting problems inside of insurance that need to be solved or should be solved or inevitably going to be solved. And let's start. Now we know a whole bunch of things that don't work. Now we can sort of, we've narrowed the scope to things that more likely will work. And, and I, so I think we're going to have just as much, if not more, innovative pressure with one-tenth the capital in the space. Oh, okay. So yeah, should we go back to that, the, the, the sheer quantity? Yeah. No, but, but I don't think that actually is the driver of impact. Right. And, and, and so you said something really interesting in there. And you talked about Google. <laughs> I can remember when it was Microsoft. Build a tech company, get Microsoft thinking you're a threat, let them buy the product, and then screw it all up and make it worse. And and sorry, Microsoft, but that's how it went. And it was a way a lot of people made a lot of money. Google's kind of the same way, but they've they've evolved from that. And one of the things that I'm gonna give, I always give a Love giving a hat tip to Pat West. I don't know if you are on social media, if you're on insurance Twitter, mm-hmm. Pat West, he goes by hedge quote. Love this guy. I've long said I want to get him on the podcast and, and chat with him. And he's agreed. And I just never sent him an invite because I've been too busy. But Pat's coming on soon. Um, fantastic guy. What he said, so the first point I want to make was, when all this stuff started coming into insurance, when the when the VC money, the all started driving into insurance and insure tech, it was about saying, "Oh, look at the look at the incumbent insurers and, and entities in this. They're so antiquated. They still yeah. do paper applications. They're not doing anything modern. Let's modernize this, and we'll just take all their business away from them." It was disruption by stealing. It's changed. But the point you made is venture capital and smart venture capital is relentless. And when they want something, they figure out how to get it. And when it, we're, we're in that pause period, and I think it goes back to the, the amount of money and it goes back to what they're going to do with it when they come back. And they're going to be smarter. They know where they failed 
And as our buddy um, Jeff Roy says, fail just means first attempt in learning. It may be costly, but they're going to get the they're going to get that money back. Yeah, absolutely, Pete. Like I, I, I could see how, and just to sort of back up on what you said about being there in 2019, and 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 Drew, to hear you say what you, I mean, that that's extremely enlightening to us because you were on the other side of it. In fact, we did interview one of your uh, VC cohorts at that time and, and and some of the things they were saying, and we were trying to link the two up, right? Because here we are with these insurance hats on and, and lifelong insurance nerds. And then then listening to your industry talk, and we would kind of walk out of those meetings and go, well, that doesn't make a lot of sense. <laughs> but you know, hey, it's their money. They're spending it good on them, right? And then we both looked at each other and said, okay, how do we go back and, and get our hands on some of this money? money because it sounds like a good time right uh you know when there's uh you know billy idol coming on stage and everything else that's going on and and the fact is at the end of the day like like you said uh it was it was trying to sell insurance in a different way versus deciding uh well like people are buying insurance we we know that let's try to and you said this earlier let's try to find a way to make it more affordable and more profitable all in sort of one uh, big picture here. Like no, no one wants to overpay for their insurance. Do you see technology in addition to finding profitable underwriting also helping people as far as like, and now this is sort of the big picture here, but is it, are we actually leading society into a better place when we can create pools, we can determine who can be with who in a better sense that uh, maybe, you know, the, the, the premium of the many, are paying uh, are paying for the claims of the few, which is always going to still be the case. But but maybe there's a better way to do it. And, and is technology the right tool to use to help people? So so at at viewpoint, we are huge believers in that. Like mo- most of what we're interested in is not disruption of the industry. It's 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 a, a lot of sort of incremental improvement. I do think that technology is needed to handle the ever-changing sort of risk landscape that we see. I mean, the, I think not many people 20 years ago would have thought that the losses in the PNC space, home and auto in the United States, that the cat risks would be as difficult to handle as they are. So the it's it's another reason why it's such fascinating industries because the like threat vector, the, the, the risk in the system is ever-changing and and technologies allows you to be slightly nimbler, uh, sort of lower that expense ratio, get to better pricing. So I, th- I think that's the key is it allows the industry to respond more quickly and thus slightly uh, tighter. And with and that allows for presumably better pricing for for clients and, and more products, more availability for, for the end consumer. Um, it's, it's interesting. We So what you mentioned up at the top, we have... have Done the first uh, the uh, the first annual InsureTech sentiment report, and so we've asked people, uh, we've asked executives. So in, in this report, we had huge number of mostly carriers uh, across the PNC and and life and annuity worlds. Uh, these were these are senior executives in either product or the uh, C-suite or corporate development, business development, innovation, those, those general buckets. And we asked them effectively, how has, how has the, how has InsureTech impacted their specific organizations? And I think not that surprising given what we're, we've all just been talking about for the last five minutes. Most, most people said 
it has been a moderate impact. You know, you could say revolutionary, minimal to no. Seventy-five percent said moderate. What's it, what I think is a little interesting is what they said for if in ten years, uh, what will it be? In PNC, fifty-one percent said revolutionary. Six percent, uh, only six percent said minimal to no. And I think that gives you a sense to, to your question about. At least the industry believes that this technology, it's had a, it hasn't had no impact. It's had moderate impact. And after you know almost eight nine years of this, seeing how the trends are performing, you know they're expecting pretty revolutionary impact. So I think it's interesting. I think it's going to be interesting to sort of follow this uh, year to year as we as we we plan on doing at Viewpoint. So Drew, then let's talk about what is revolutionary impact? Because I guess what I say is, you know, in in your sentiment report, you're, gonna, you're talking about this, right? This report's getting released yep. during ITC. Um, are you going to be talking about the report when you're there? Yeah. So one of the things that Viewpoint's doing, we, we have a close relationship. We love ITC, as I yeah. started with. It's, it's one of my favorite times of year, honestly. It's so yep. much fun. Uh, Agreed. But we have a, uh, we have a, we're running the corporate development Innovation and Strategy Summit on the first day of the conference on yeah. Tuesday, and we'll be presenting that in sort of closed uh, in that closed door. That that, that summit is only for uh, executives of carriers for the for the most part, and so we'll be walking through that survey results. People who took the survey will also get that report. If you are looking to be part of it or get it for next year, uh, you're looking for for people to, to send it to for, for next year. We had a great response this year, but obviously we want it even bigger next year. So uh, it's, that's um, that's how we're going to be disseminating it for the most part. Okay. So, and uh, this is good because I think you, you people want to understand this report because you're, we talk about the future, but and going back to this revolutionary idea, do we have yeah. examples already of what has been foundationally revolutionary in the industry that would may sort of may sort of point to, hey, this is the kind of thing that we need to prepare for, because there's so much going on in this ecosystem right now about what's coming next. We go to these conferences like ITC, which we love to, and we want to learn more. We want to try and do things, but it's an overwhelming experience when you look backwards, because, you know, if you don't understand history, you're doomed to repeat it. Hopefully the good history. But what do you see that is revolutionary that may point yeah. to the kind of changes we should be preparing for? I'm going to give two big examples. And uh, maybe controversially, they're not exactly what I'll call tech examples, but they are fairly recent. And they've been fairly revolutionary, or totally revolutionary. One is one in the life and annuity world and one in the PNC world. The it's, it, we, we talked a lot about venture capital uh, just a few minutes ago. Private equity, which is a different category of asset class than venture capital. Venture capital, it's the hypier stuff. It's the s- startups and, and private equity is the more, I'll call it sober capital. There's way more capital in private equity than there is venture capital. Uh, and yeah, you know, all things being equal, I probably would say private equity people are smarter than venture capital people in my experience. They have been onto what actually works in insurance for a couple decades. And one of the things that they've done is they've plowed an enormous amount of money into broker roll-ups. 
So this is particularly in the U.S., but this is expanding globally. Uh, private equity firms backing the accumulation, the acquisitions of large numbers of brokerage firms it's to create insane. conglomerate brokerage firms. It's insane. Yeah. Like it, it's it's north of the 49th parallel. It's some people will call it an epidemic. And I know what's happening <laughs> yeah. on elsewhere too. Like that's why the, my the the term revolutionary is more about the change itself. It, it I would not put a qualifier of good or bad change but it is change. And the, and the change has been revolutionary. The, the, you, you talk to carriers on the PNC side, 10 years ago, they think of their independent agent distribution as being incredibly fractured. And there's being lots and lots and lots of small independent agents. And now they talk about a huge percentage of their total distribution being controlled by a very small number of names that are all private equity backed rollups. That th- there is, th- th- there's, I don't sort of put a good or bad on it. It is a revolutionary change and it, it changes the dynamic, but and and the sort of the power uh, between distribution and manufacturing and, and carriers are, we talked to, so we didn't really lead with this, but uh, viewpoint is, is a, is a VC fund. We have two sides of our fund. One side of our fund is a very, very deeply thematic investing. It looks a little private equity ish, but it's venture capital, but it, uh, we're only going to do 10 investments in the whole funds. So we're very concentrated. We are a stage agnostic investor uh, and we're deeply thematic. That's super specific. And we, we um, sort of a narrow part of what we do. The other thing that we do is we have what's called the viewpoint forward network. That network is a proprietary network of today. I think we're up to 75 or 76 insurance institutions that we service that we uh, provide really bespoke matchmaking services to the startups that are most relevant. We do a number of reports to those institutions. I think of the 75-ish, 45-ish are insurance carriers. So it's a huge, deep proprietary network. And we get a huge amount of intelligence about what's happening in the market from this network. And this is where I was, where this information is coming from about how we get carriers talk to us about, you know, they used to have a very fractured distribution model. And now it's incredibly consolidated with only a small number of names who are pushing them very hard on technical integrations or they're pushing them hard on commissions because they're now saying, Hey, we're so big. We're so important to you. You need to pay us more or, and, and so, so that's been a very revolutionary change and, and tech enablement of that. We believe at viewpoint is going to accelerate this, this sort of consolidation um, and the sort of power that distribution has over the manufacturing space. Th- that I call that a PNC trend. It's also happened in a number of other insurance markets in um, annuities and in, um, in health uh, as well. There's a really big one called integrity. On the other side, the other thing I was going to mention is actually on the carrier side, uh, there's in the, in the United, in the U S there's a, it was a, a very, very large alt asset manager, an asset manager called Apollo that created a new annuity company called Athene. And Athene genuinely has changed the annuity business in the US and forced change throughout the market. The, the theoretical model of this is what Apollo was particularly good at was m- managing 
assets to get above market returns by going into places that traditional asset managers didn't. Private credit, private equity, investing in more risky but higher yielding assets. And they, I believe, are the number one in fixed annuity writer in the United States today. They've grown, it's almost like the, they've grown bigger than, the Athene has grown bigger than Apollo, the thing that actually created them originally. It's, it's been an unbelievable success and has driven the, the incumbent carriers to think about how they respond to this, to this new competitor in the space, now, now sort of dominant player in the space. And we, we think, uh, so anyway, these are just two examples of revolutionary change in the market in the last 10 years. You, and hey, man, like you're you're presenting this within uh, uh, InsureTech uh, next week or at ITC, sorry. Um, and one of the stats there is uh, from some of these surveys you're doing is 46% believe InsureTech will have a revolutionary impact on the industry in the next 10 years. And you just sort of stated an example of that, that, uh, you know, th- 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 there's where uh, uh, one example on the life side that, that things have changed. So is it? getting easier to dig through which ones look like they're making some progress because now there's some history. Like we've, we, we, you know, you talked uh, 2015, we kind of branded the phrase InsureTech. Um, and now here we are in 2023. So nearly, nearly 10 years later. Uh, is there any, because history sort of helps us point us in the right direction. Do you think that there's sort of a snowball effect that's going to take uh, place here? because of the fact that the money should start to go to the right people who are actually um, peeling back the onion properly and not just, like we said earlier, just yeah. throwing money at the wall. Like, like, is there a point where there's going to be critical mass? And I keep referring to snow because I look outside. I apologize. But, uh, <laughs> um, I can't wait to get on a plane and go to Vegas. So uh, yeah, what's no, your thoughts on that? Uh, yeah, I. so the interesting thing is these these um these revolutionary examples i just gave they started with sort of one pioneer and then huge quantities of capital came afterwards once they yeah. saw that it worked and there's and yeah. the insurance industry is huge and so you can uh it's okay like you can have multiple big winners in these in these ones that proven themselves and i think that's what we're gonna see that so the the the, the number of of entities that actually show that they can be successful is going to be pretty small, but their impact could be really, really big. Cause yes, exactly. You're, you can fairly easily track whether it's working or it's not working and yeah. then put money behind them or something that looks a lot like them. It's, it's with a, the big change between the 2018, 2020, 2021 era. And today is the aperture the aperture is much more narrow. We are interested in a smaller number of things. I think that's true for all VCs, even though we all, you know, we're deeply thematic and I think other VCs are a little bit more um, sort of reactive to what's coming to them. But the buy box, the, what are they, what are they willing to underwrite is much, much, much more narrow, but I don't, but I actually think that's the right way to do this and have the biggest revolutionary outcome because only a small number of things of, of these ideas actually work and drive this meaningful change. And so it's, it's, there'll be less distraction going uh, uh, for the next couple of years around in the past, it might have looked that things were working because they were able to raise capital. And that's different 
then they were things that were actually working. And I believe in the future, there's going to be far more of the things that only many, many fewer things will be able to raise capital and uh, subsequently raise capital. And the ones that are will be demonstrating very real signals that what they're doing is impactful and, and meaningful to the industry. And I think, you know, you, you'd sort of, uh, and I'm looking ahead here in the next week, but, uh, having, like Pete said, having been to insure tech a number of times now and watched its evolution of who's on the trade floor, right? Like you walk out there from what it looked like, uh, prior to the pandemic and then what it looks like today, uh, what it'll look like next week when we all get there. I, I look forward to bumping into you on Thursday yeah. because I'm pretty sure. Uh, and I put one hand up five. I'm probably exaggerating here. It's probably only three or four. I'm doing that backwards. Good thing we don't record these on video. Um, categories that we really will see there. Mm. Like, like we, we, we really started to see it take shape differently last year where we walked mm. around and Pete and I said, okay, here's this bucket. And I'm not going to say what they are. And then yeah. here's this bucket. And yep. then here's this bucket. Right. And I said, three. Maybe it's four or five, but really at the day, this sort of comes back to what you were just saying is how, you know, there's there's sort of a, a formula f- kind of floating around and others are seeing it and they're jumping onto it as well, which is which is fine. I guess that's always, yeah. uh, you know, uh, plagiarism is the best form of uh, flattery, is it? Or something sure. like that, right? Yeah. Um, so not everybody's going to be the first to the punch on 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 the idea, but maybe they'll you know, maybe they're, they're following the first person and they're actually going to do it better. So it's not to say that just because you were the guy to kind of launch that concept, it was the best one. Um, so yeah. How do you feel? Like, do you see that? And without naming specific groups sure. of tech and groups of uh, change makers, do you see that in fact, it is kind of falling into these buckets? So the, the, I'm going to take two different lenses to it. One is the venture capital lens. The venture capital lens is really specific because there's a whole dynamics where the venture capital are these big bets where you need to have huge opportunities and it, you know they're high risk and high reward if it actually works out. And that, by definition, limits the number of things we can look at because there can be great businesses that shouldn't be raising capital from venture capital. Gotcha. Because they're a life, they're more what you call quote unquote lifestyle business or they, um, or there are, you know, more PE backable business that they're, they're large, but they're maybe don't have, you know, the hot, that classic venture capital hockey stick potential to them in no way does that, uh, does the category that they fit in for capital appetite mean anything to quality. It, it, it truly does not. People, we went through a little bit of a time there where people thought venture capital was like is like the cooler capital, but it, it just that's a, it's a really silly way of thinking about it. So the, the you are particularly right there. I think there's a very small number of things that we have seen, small number of buckets that are that can have the venture capital return. But I don't totally agree on for all the buckets. There's, there's, I mean, because insure tech is not just about startups. It's just, it's, it's, but the technical change in the industry, and that can come from big businesses. It can come from small businesses. I know, uh, you know, uh, there's, there's interesting survey businesses like 
Baines MPS Prism, which is, I think, a really interesting new tech business that's coming out of Bain. It's, it's not a startup, but it's totally sustainable, I assume, and it's, uh, it's really interesting. There's, um, there are these roll-ups, which aren't sort of venture-backable, but I think you're, we're going to see a number of them attending is my guess. There's a number of tech companies, so SaaS to insurance carriers. SaaS to insurance carriers is a really challenging business because people think carriers have this huge amount of money to spend on technology. They do. A lot of that money is being spent on maintaining existing systems. They, the insurance carriers' operations run at typically thin margins. They don't have tons of money to be throw at the, the brand new things. And so SaaS is a challenging business. If you're trying to sell it to insurance carriers, Guidewire has built an incredible business out of that over a number of years, starting at a very, very different time. But I think there's there are businesses that can be great businesses that just aren't sort of venture capital eligible, but that's not a bad thing. So I, I think we'll see many more of those types of buckets that are that are not that are outside the VC lens. Drew, you talk about um, the term roll-ups, right, when it comes to distribution channel and maybe other ones. Yeah. And we look at it as aggregators and consolidators, just, you know, same same idea, concept, and stuff. It's a very controversial thing in our neck of the woods, and I know it. Ha- there's a lot of people with um, strong opinions of it in the United States as well in, in the insurance industry and the independent, you know, the big eye, the independent, independent agents and the idea of independence is such a foundational tenet of, of how people look at distribution. Do you think these roll-ups and aggregators are going to change the way we look at independence and will there be influence from the, the capital that's coming into them? Because that's the big question that no one's talking about. I think you 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 add so if you consolidate these these agencies, these brokers, and you're using private equity or you're using venture capital to do it, are you going to lose independence? Because that is something. That's my sixty four thousand yeah. dollar question. We we think a lot about this question. A lot actually. The vent viewpoint is particularly interested in producers in the in in a broader than insurance sense we love businesses and industries that have a producer at their core an agent a broker a wealth manager you know you find this in insurance you find this in real estate you find this in wealth management you find this in private jet market turns out that there's a broker at the heart of it those businesses i think are particularly misunderstood by the broader venture capital community. And that's where we think we, there's like a whole bunch of really interesting stuff. So we think about this question a lot. The, the opportunity in, if you are a great producer and you can be great in a number of ways, you can be great because you're an unbelievable hustler, right? You just, you just out hustle everybody else. You could be great because you have cracked a code on a particular sub market that is that you have an attraction to or an affinity to or a knowledge base for and you just get these incredible referral systems you know streams towards you you could be great because you're just people trust what you have to say and you're so thoughtful and people really need that in that particular sort of insurance market that you're you're selling for those great producers i believe the future is going to be amazing because the a lot of what we are seeing that's really exciting is stuff that makes their life easier that says, hey, today, maybe 50% of your time is being spent on actual client interface, revenue producing activity. And the other 50% is 
filling out paper or logging to some portal or there's a million things you're doing that aren't talking to a client. And most of that will go away, we think, in the near term. Is that driven by the consolidators, driven by the tech? It's going to be a mix. We're going to see a whole bunch of this. But your question was about what about the independence of that producer? And great producers are going to have a great time. Uh, they're, they're, the leverage that they will get going forward, I think, is going to be a lot higher. What they do with that leverage, whether that means you know more time at home or that means making more money, Whatever they can, they can go figure that out. But I, I think it's going to be really, really good for them. I think it's going to be, I think they are going to command a larger chunk of the total market, and so I think they're going to see a bigger bifurcation between great producers and everybody else, and we're going to see a total. We think we're, there's going to be an even bigger bifurcation between the large systems, the lar- call them rollups, or I mean, Goosehead isn't a rollup, but it's doing really interesting things in this space. Those systems that build large, large systems of producers that actively invest in continuous improvement in making that producer's life better and more productive, we're going to see a big bifurcation between systems that do that and systems that tell producers they will do that and don't actually deliver. And tech will be a core component or a really, really important piece of that puzzle of of actually fulfilling that and being able to recruit those great producers onto their platforms. So in general, I think it's actually like they might not be independent on a brand basis, but, but they will have incredible power in the system. Great producers will. Yeah. And I think Drew, to support your, just sort of how you're painting that picture is, is, is we've also sort of painted the picture to the industry that this PE wake that's forming, right? With, with the consolidation of all of these agencies and all of these brokers, and it's just pushing ahead. And behind that, you've got this pocket now where uh, producers, uh, good insurance-minded people are falling out of that sort of big bulge of, uh, of, of what the PEs created. And it's going to be interesting to watch that because uh, the tech, like you say, and the tools that are becoming available to them means that they don't have to maybe always be part of a large organization to be successful. At one time, to be a good producer, you had to have behind you you know, 10 good insurance companies. You had to have a, a department of marketing people. You had to have uh, you know, a branding campaign and all these things that, that the big consolidated brokers all have. But the tools that are coming out are changing all of that. So we're excited uh, here at the Insurance Podcast to hear you say that because what you said supports some of the thinking we have. And I think Pete has one last question for you before we head off. Well, j- just on your point, we refer to that internally as the soft underbelly of the roll-ups. That there's, yeah. they, they, they made the principle of the broker rich, presumably. But there's probably a number of producers underneath that principle who were promised a whole bunch of stuff about, oh, it's going to be great when you, when you join this new entity. It's going to be amazing. And they're, uh, okay, I'm not sure it really is. Maybe I can just go do this my own, myself. So, yeah, to- totally agree. Yeah. You know, I, I actually I have one question, but I have like 60 questions because yeah, exactly. the, the producer part we're is gonna so- We're going to see them in, in three days. Yeah, so we're going to see it in three days. <laughs> yeah. We're going to get some live audio. Well, maybe maybe there'll be a, co- a cocktail involved, yeah. like a nice sure. fresh juice. Even better. Yeah, Even better. A fresh yeah. juice at the juice bar. I can't remember who's sponsoring that. I should give them a plug. Or the coffee bar by Cover Genius. There you go. But hey- Drew, one of the things like the soft underbelly of the producers, are we, and this isn't the question I wanted to ask, but are we giving them enough credit 
And to tie that in, does the future of these people who are really good at producing business, they've, they've either cracked the code, they, they, yep. they, they hustle, whatever they do, are they going to be a commodity that they're going to have some leverage with? And where do they go if they don't like these aggregators and roll-ups? Because my question is, the one entity in this we haven't really talked about is where do the MGAs fit into this ecosystem? And do they have a distinct? <laughs> you smile. Jeez, no, do no, they see, have a distinct? A conversation. Yeah, distinct <laughs> advantage in this, given what we're talking about, because I think there is something there. We've talked to some other guests in the past who are very bullish on MGAs and where they're going to f- sit in this ecosystem going forward. What do you see when it comes to producers, and can they bypass these rollups and go right to MGAs? I don't know how to answer this in, you know, sub 30 seconds. Let me, oh, let me go, go long. Like I, I, I'm waiting for this answer. Long. What if I made you pause? I did something good. So <laughs> Just don't tell them it's a good uh, question. Yeah. Don't say yeah. that. <laughs> <laughs> it, it is a good question. It's, I mean, it's great. I mean, we, and we, this is like, this is like one of the questions we, we debate a lot internally at, at, at viewpoint. So, I mean, there was a couple embedded questions in there. One of the first ones I'll start with is this question around, uh, Will producers, will they stay great producers? Are they going to stay? I think we will do their own thing with, with tech externally or they yeah. have to join something big. Yeah. And, and, and at, do they need the resource of the roll-ups and the aggregators, right? Yep. And then, and then, and then it will I'll layer on the, the MGA question for this first one. Effectively what the, the effectively that question is, is how robust of a tool set will exist external to these to these large rolls roll-ups is there a sustainable business model for software for SaaS software businesses to sell technology into small brokers i don't think there is the uh the world is littered with subscale broker tools it's an unbelievably difficult business and i'll tell you why? Oh my I'm, god! I'm, I'm, I'm getting, this is I'm getting so good. I'm just giddy. By, yes, yeah, okay. I, this is so, so good. The um, I, I I'm gonna paint with a broad brush, right? And everyone is different, obviously. And uh, you know, I'm gonna be I'm gonna be definitely wrong in a number of specific situations. And remember, this is coming from a group that we just absolutely love. Producers, producers tend not to wake up thinking about technology. What they, it's, it's, it's not what gets them up in the morning. It's not what they're really interested in. The reason why that matters is because they're really tough buyers of tech. You, 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 they don't like changing their workflow, not unreasonably. And no one likes that. Their workflow sucks today. Whatever, you know, they have X number of tabs and, and learning a new thing is all really, really difficult. So what that, what happens is if you sell SaaS to brokers, you tend to get What's in the venture capital world, you get what's called high CACs, high customer acquisition costs. It costs you a lot of money to get that broker to buy your system. And then because they tend to be small business owners themselves where the, the dollars and cents matter, you can't charge them a lot. And that leads to low LTVs, low lifetime value. So the broker, as a small broker, it's, it's expensive to market to them and you don't make a lot of money from them. And so that leads to subscale software businesses. Businesses that can't quite 
get the flywheel of growth going versus if you have the opposite of the two things I just said, you have low CAC, so it doesn't cost that much and you make a lot from them, you get all this free cash, you get to plow back into marketing and you get to build a really, really big business. It, that's been really, really challenging in the broker tool space. And I'm talking in insurance, I'm talking in wealth management, in real estate. It's when you find producers, it, you tend not to get a really amazing uh, a vibrant, you know, broker tool SaaS ecosystem. You get you get a lot of them because people start them because they see a problem and then they try to build and it's easy to build a software solution for it. But you don't tend to get amazing outcomes from it. What the alternative is? You like a goosehead style system where they are they have the budgets to really put into this effort. And they don't get they don't get from their brokers a SaaS fee of a hundred dollars per broker per month, agent per month. They're they are the brokerage, so they get to take a chunk of the commission. That is a much, much, much higher they get to keep a lot more of the economics, and so it's worth a lot more to them. What the reason this is an okay outcome if you're a good producer is because you as who's creating the value in the system? It's the good producer. And so what we see, this goes back to my last answer, is they will they are who all these systems will be trying to get. And so they will have to invest into systems that, that attract those players. But we are not crazy bullish on having an amazing tool suite outside of these large systems. One other but counter, like an example that is um sort of goes against what I'm talking about is I'm talking the business model of SaaS tools sold to brokers is really challenging. But there, we're, there is an alternative, which is what I'll call a digital wholesaler model where it's a X, you can be an independent small broker or agent and you, and, and you write your, you quote and bind through a different system. That different system can take a percentage of premium rather than selling seat licenses. They can take a percentage of premium. If they can take a percentage of premium, that's a scalable business. And those systems, which is technically that's, that's a third party, right? It's not a goosehead thing where everyone, you know, you're within the tent. This is one where that tool is outside of the, the broker's tent. They might build a robust suite of solutions so that those agents use them to quote and bind their policies rather than somebody else. And that is a sustaining model. So it a little bit depends is my answer. But my main thing is I don't see a world where you're going to be buying multiple. There's going to be a bunch of big winners in the space and there's going to be incredibly good technology when you're buying multiple of these software solutions. It's going to consolidate down to either one sort of massive thing that does all your things externally or you're part of a larger system. Uh, the second question on MGAs, we see a huge bifurcation going forward between flow business and you know cu- customized business, the bespoke business. So when I say flow business, easy to quote, easy to bind. That is a lot of small commercial now. It's a, almost all of personal lines. Though what's interesting is with increased cat exposure, personal lines is going more in ENS. But in the flow business world, uh, 
there's going to be a ton of consolidation because there's probably a whole bunch of really interesting reasons we don't exactly have time to go into right now that there's going to be systems that sit like those digital wholesalers we're just talking about or a goose head system. They're going to build those things and they're going to get really big, really fast on flow business. When, because we believe that brokers and agents don't love having to go into multiple systems. So there's a natural gravity that drives them to a single workflow tool. There's a natural gravity that will drive to consolidation there. That workflow tool should be solving the distribution problem for these specialty MGAs. And all of a sudden, it does make sense that now there's a huge amount of consolidated distribution that MGAs could just plug into those technical those technical, te- those technical central platforms. And we can see tons of really sort of specialization coming off of that. But that's for only one type of that business, which is the you know, non-flow business, non-super super easy, repeatable, you know, every carrier can write a policy for type stuff. Okay. Um, I have like another <laughs> 60 questions, but hey, like Drew, we got, we got to wrap this because one, you've got things to do. We've got things to do. We've got to get our act together. We're all going down to ITC next week. And, um, we're going to come try and find you and hang out and chat some more because then I'll, I'll have my list of 60 questions. Maybe I'll email them to you beforehand. <laughs> But amazing. Uh, look, thank you so much for sharing this. This has been one of the funnest ones we've done in a while. You got an incredible energy, but such a neat perspective. And I guess, you know, with viewpoint, you touch on so many things because you're looking at things, but just to we didn't really get into some of the nuances of what you do, but you guys really are helping entities come together to sort of yeah. further their business success. You're not an advisory team. You're like a linkage team in a certain sense of helping people attract equity, lifting entities up, and you're seeing the picture in such a great way. Is that a, is that a fair statement? Totally. The forward network, what we're building there, it's, it's, it, we, we think of it as almost like an industry utility. We, we want, it is incredibly valuable to us to become a centralized hub where people come to get connected to other people. People come to understand what's happening in the market. And so we want to be that hub for everyone. And that is just really, really helpful to us on the other side of the business, which is the investing side. So we are looking for, you know, if you're a, a carrier, a broker, a service provider to the industry, there's something we can do to help you. If you're a startup, there's probably something we can do to help you. We'll probably make that connection that you've been sort of looking for. And, and, uh, and, and that's the whole, it's the whole mission. It's totally free of charge. Uh, it's, it, it's something we're just really, really passionate about. Fantastic. Drew, thanks again for dropping on and uh, working with us on some weird timelines due to our, our Canadian winter weather. And uh, hope, yeah. let's, uh, let's connect next week and uh, have some fun. That sounds great. Thanks for listening to the Insurance Podcast, brought to you by First Insurance Funding of Canada, the innovator in insurance payments. Hi, I'm Logan Anderson, host of the Say the Damn Score podcast. On my show, I deep dive into the sports broadcasting business by, you guessed it, talking to sportscasters. The show has featured big names like Bob Costas, Kenny Albert, and Vern Lundquist, as well as many up-and-coming broadcasters who you may not know yet, but you will know soon. Whether you're looking for professional development as a sportscaster, different career paths, or if you just want to be entertained by hearing some of the best storytellers in the world tell their own stories, this podcast is for you. You can subscribe to the podcast on all major podcast platforms, or you can visit our website, saythedamnscore.com. 
I'm Andrea Askowitz. And I'm Allison Langer. And we are the hosts of Writing Class Radio, a podcast, but we are so much more. We have writing classes. So if you are looking for live online classes where you can join a community, write to a prompt, get feedback, and get better, check out all our classes at writingclassradio.com. And listen to our podcast wherever you get your podcasts and at writingclassradio.com.